Welcome to Bible Greek VPod's Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 11. In this lesson, you will learn the pronoun, and then I will cover 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. First, the pronoun. The pronoun replaces a noun or substantive. The pronoun serves as a literary device to prevent that monotony of repeated use of the noun. The noun that the pronoun replaces is called the antecedent. The word pronoun comes from the Latin pronomion, meaning for a noun. The pronoun must agree with the antecedent noun that it replaces in gender, number, but its case is determined by its intended usage. There are several types of pronouns. The first type of pronoun is the personal pronoun. The personal pronoun indicates an individual, a person, or group. The personal pronouns are ego, I, hemis, we, Su, you, humis, you, plural, atas, he, and atoi, they. The personal pronouns function with the case in the same way nouns do. For example, when I do something, the pronoun is said to be in the nominative case. When something is done to me, the pronoun is in the accusative case. Pronouns such as my, her, and their are in the genitive case. The uses of the personal pronoun. First, the pronoun can function as a pronoun of emphasis. In this instance, the pronoun is in the nominative case and it is used to emphasize the subject. See, the verb could normally supply the subject, but you can place the pronoun there to kind of double emphasize the subject. The emphasis is of kind or degree. An example is John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and your fruit should remain. Next is the oblique usage. The use of the personal pronoun in the oblique case, cases other than the nominative, is simply to stand in the place of the noun. That's the normal usage. Another use is the redundant use. The third-person pronoun, atas, is sometimes used redundantly. It may be found in the following ways. In the attributive position, it is translated as same or reflective, whether in the nominative or another case. For example, in Matthew 3, verse 4. And the same John, or you could say John himself, was clothed in camel's hair. Atas de 
Ha-Ionos, the same John. In the predicate position, translate in the intensive sense as self. For example, Luke twenty-four thirty-nine. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. See, it's the uh, intensive case. I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Next, we have the demonstrative pronoun. A demonstrative pronoun is a pronoun that serves to point out and has the idea of showing with clearness and certainty. It comes from the Latin demonstiere, meaning to point out, to show. There are two demonstratives in the Greek. There is the near demonstrative this, utas, and the far or remote demonstrative that. The normal usage points out the near, immediate object. The normal far usage points out the far, distant, or remote object. The nearness or remoteness refers to the literary context, and thus its meaning must come from its context. Please note, the demonstrative does not always refer to the closest noun, since it serves to point out the noun that is most important in the mind of the writer, which may or not be the closest noun. An example of a near usage is Matthew 3, nine. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Of course, he's pointing to Jesus. And then an example of the far usage is Matthew 13.11. To you, that is, he's talking to the Jews, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to those, and you could insert people, to those people, it has not been given. That's the remote or far distance usage. Occasionally, the demonstrative pronoun can be used as a personal pronoun, can be translated as a personal pronoun. Example is John 5, verse 6. When Jesus saw him, that's a pronoun, I mean a demonstrative pronoun, when John, John saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? So, see, the uh, demonstrative can be used as a personal pronoun. Next, we turn to the relative pronoun. The word relative comes from the Latin refere, to refer so a relative pronoun is a word that relates more than one clause together. The relative pronoun introduces a subordinate clause referring to an antecedent and is represented or translated by the words who, which, and that. Relative pronouns can be definite, hos, who, which, or that, and indefinite, 
the ha hostis, who, which, whoever, whichever. The relative pronoun has a regular usage. And its regular usage is when the relative pronoun connects the qualifying clause and agrees with the antecedent in gender and number, but not in case. It serves to define, to clarify, or to restrict the meaning of the noun. An example is Colossians 2.10. And you are complete in him, here's a relative pronoun, who is the head of all principality and power. A relative pronoun normally agrees with its antecedent in gender and number, but sometimes the relative pronoun is attracted to the case of the antecedent resulting in a relative clause. That's the attractive usage. There are a couple of parts. First is the direct attraction. When the relative pronoun is attracted to the case of the antecedent, it is called direct. An example is John 4, verse 14. But whoever, there's that relative pronoun, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become to him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The next is the indirect attraction. When the antecedent is attracted to the case of the relative pronoun, it is called indirect attraction. For example, in Mark 12, verse 10, And have you not read this scripture? The stone which, see there's that relative pronoun, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. That's an indirect attraction. And then finally, we have the case of the omission of the antecedent. In other words, it, this relative pronoun just stands by itself. In this case, the relative pronoun is functioning either as a demonstrative, the one whom, you could translate, or that which, or it could be uh, used as an indirect or indefinite pronoun. It could be used as an indefinite pronoun. Whoever, whichever. An example is 1 John 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, that's that um, abstract. It's also in the neuter case. And it starts out the verse, so there is no previous uh, noun so it just is a relative pronoun that that points to the abstract that which was from the beginning and then it's used again which we have heard and then it's used again which we have seen with our eyes and then finally this wonderful literary context which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life Next, let's move to the interrogative pronouns. An interrogative pronoun is a word that asks a question. The word interrogative comes from the Latin interrogare, meaning to question, to ask, or to interrogate. The interrogative pronouns tis and ti 
serve to ask an identifying question, meaning who or what. Or it could be adverbally, why? For example, Mark 8, verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say I am? There's that interrogative pronoun, tis. Who do men say I am? The interrogative paois asked the qualifying question of what kind, what sort, or which. An example is John 12, verse 33. This, he said, signifying by what sort, there's that interrogative pronoun, of what sort of death he would die. It asks a qualitative question. The interrogative pasas asks the quantitative question. How much? How great? Or how many? An example is Luke 16, verse 7. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So it asks the question, How much do you owe? Next we move to possessive pronouns. The possessive pronouns are imas, my or mine, sos, your, hemitros, our, and hamitros, your, in the plural sense. There is no possessive pronoun for the third person. Instead, the genitive of atas, his, is used. An example is found in John chapter 5, verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. My own will is not what I seek. Uh, It's not of myself. Next, we move to the reflective pronouns. The reflective pronoun indicates the action of the subject that acts upon itself. To say it another way, the subject and the object of the sentence refer to the same person or thing. The word reflex comes from the Latin reflecto, meaning to turn back or to bend back and is represented by the words myself, yourself, and himself. The reflective pronouns are imata, of myself, seatu, of yourself, iatu, of himself, and iaton, of themselves. For example, Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. There's that reflexive pronoun. And take up his cross and follow me. The next pronoun is a reciprocal pronoun. A reciprocal pronoun expresses an 
interaction between two or more groups. The action relationship or that interchange is mutual between the parties. The word reciprocal comes from the Latin reciprocus, meaning to move backwards and forwards. See, that's that uh, interaction there between the two groups. The uh, reciprocal pronoun is alone, of one another. An example is found in 1 John 4, verse 7. Behold, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So the idea is, beloved, let us love one another. Finally, the indefinite pronoun. An indefinite pronoun is used to introduce a person or thing without further identification. The indefinite pronoun tis is translated someone or anyone or as an indefinite adjective, a certain person. For example, John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. That indefinite pronoun tis if anyone eats from this bread. Next, let's move to our text for today. And I hope you have gone to the website and got the detailed analysis for 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And we find now that John addresses the little children. In verse 18, we come to the timing aspect. Little children, it is the last hour. John directs his address back to the little children as the vocative. The tense of address is again used for Pidon. Again it is used metaphorically, meaning like a child in intellect. But likewise, just as a young student progresses in learning, these too are expected to grow in the knowledge of Christ. This learning is now directed to the subject as that adjective here eschatos, the uh, adjective nominative feminine singular, the extreme or the last modifies the noun hora, a certain definite time or season and normally used as just an hour. And in this context, it means the last season before the return of the Messiah. The early church believed this period of time to be the last period. And they anticipated the return of the Lord. He told them he would return a second time to bring in the Messianic age or the Messianic kingdom in Matthew 24 and 25. It appears that the whole of the church age and the time of Jacob's trouble that we find in the Old Testament, that time of the great tribulation, they're considered together the last days. This is again made clear by the use of the present tense of emi. It is, or it continues to be, the last season. Great debate has occurred throughout history concerning when this last day is to be, but John makes it clear that the last days are here. 
that this period includes the appearance of Antichrist, who are present, and they're spreading confusion within the church. Next, John moves in the second phrase of verse 18 through verse 19 to the Antichrist. Let's look at the second phrase of verse 18. And just as you have heard that Antichrist comes, the little children had heard about the teachings concerning the Antichrist from both the Old Testament prophets, for example, in Daniel, from Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, and from other writings, for example, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which they apparently had in their possession in the church, in the early church. This is made clear by the expression, just as you already heard. The adverb, kathos, uh, according as, or even as, comes from the compound of kata, which is according to, and hos, as, or like, and it brings the historical teaching to the present reality as the adverb modifies that verb akuo, which is an aorist active indicative second person plural. You heard. What was heard involved the antichristos, the antichrist, the adversary of the Messiah. The word comes from the compound anti, meaning over against or opposite to, and Christos, the Christ, the anointed. And it refers to the little horn of Daniel 7, the blasphemous ruler who, who makes war with the saints and is destroyed by the Ancient of Days, by Christ himself. This person will come and gain control politically, economically, and religiously. The Antichrist is controlled by Satan and opposes God and the things of God teaching false views about Christ, lying, deceiving many, and performing counter-miracles. The Antichrist right now is being restrained, and he will be destroyed by Christ himself at his return and thrown into the lake of fire. The Antichrist is coming. That is the present tense of Erakamai, to come indicates a prophetic middle. From the speaker's point of view, the Antichrist is coming. Just as Christ's appearance is imminent, the Antichrist's appearance is also imminent. The next phrase, Even now many Antichrists have appeared from which we know that the last hour is coming. John adds, the time element to their presence by using the word noon. It's an adverb. At this time, the present or now. At this current time, Antichristos, the plural now, Antichrists, uh, in, in fact, palus is the adjective nominative masculine plural. Many Antichrists are present. The exact time of their arrival is not specified, but it is clear. By the use of the perfect tense of ginomai, the perfect active indicative third person plural, they have come, or they have come into existence, that they have arisen in the past 
from the point of this writing, that is, and they continue to the present. The word means they have appeared in history, they have come onto the stage, they have made a public appearance. And since you know that the Antichrists have come, then it stands to reason that it is hothen, an adverb, from which, or from this, that we stand today knowing, that's that ginosko again, that we, first person plural, he includes himself, knowing that it is the last hour. We know it is the last hour. In other words, because they know the last hour involves this opposition, it follows that it is the last hour. The last phrase, it is the last hour, has a historical context, meaning the period of trouble before the second coming and judgment by Jesus Christ. Weist, that great uh, Greek scholar, notes this. It is the last hour. The article is absent before hour. And the emphasis is not therefore upon the fact of a particular definite time, but upon the character of that particular definite time. So the verb is the to be verb and is in the present tense, meaning that at the time of writing, they were in the last hour, and it continues. The adjective eschatos, extreme or last, modifies hora, the hour, meaning it really is the last hour, but the word for hour is used metaphorically. Since it used for a twelfth part of the day does not make sense in the context. Instead, the usage has the meaning of a certain definite time or season that God himself has marked off. Its characteristics are explained by those who oppose God and are called Antichrist, since they possess the same characteristics as the Antichrist. Verse 19, the first phrase, They went out from us, but they were not from us. The general deception and method of a counterfeit is to enter into the realm of the real thing, become a solid member of the body, preferably in some form of leadership, then in cooperation with Satan, move to destroy the body, or to take over the body so that destructive doctrines become the norm. They bring in destructive heresies. The source of the great deception is identified by the preposition ek, out of, or from, us. In typical Greek fashion, the verb used matches the preposition of the phrase ek erakomai, to go or come forth. It's the aorist uh, plural, third person plural. To go out from the compound ek, and in that primary verb erakomai. So they went out. This is the ablative of separation. That is, they went out. They separated from us. Indeed, they went out from the church universal, but they never really were part of the church, meaning they really never were believers at all. These people use the language. They profess to be with the church, 
but in reality they cause dissension and discord because they are not of the same mind of Christ since they are not in Christ. That's the technical word for the church age. Believers in the church age are in Christ. This group is different as distinguished by the contrastive Allah. But in contrast to a true believer who goes out from us and is productive in whatever manner that may be, this person is not fruitful in bringing people to Christ because he did not have Christ as his Savior in the first place. The imperfect of the to-be verb makes the state of being of these antichrists a progressive in time past. This is most likely an inceptive imperfect, denoting continuous action, but emphasizing the initiation of the process, the beginning of an action rather than its progress. In other words, they never were nor continued ever to be a part of our group. The important aspect of the preposition ek used with the to-be verb seems to indicate origin. An ablative can either be used to indicate separation or origin. The sense then is that they came out from them, that is separation, but they never originated with them. They had no real fellowship with the body. In essence, the ethical moves to the theological. The ethical being that aspect of Christianity that is believed and lived out in reality, possessing fellowship with one another. The theological being that aspect of Christianity that proclaims the truth of the Christian faith and forms a foundation of fellowship. This person does not possess a theological aspect, so it follows. He cannot possess the true ethical basis of the faith. There might be an ethic nature that they stress, but it is perverted, mostly legalistic in quality, or in the case of the Gnostics, overemphasis upon being so spiritual that they say they cannot sin. That is the kind of battle, spiritual battle, that John is facing in that day. The next phrase. For if they were from us, they would have remained with us. The apostle now gives his justification for his argument by introducing the classic Greek construction for if, using the conditional particle I, if, with the conjunction gar, for. The construction for if might better be translated because. Here the imperfect of the to-be verb is again used, with the preposition ek indicating their origin and state of being is not with the group. Dr. Linsky points out that for explains if they were inwardly with us, they would have remained outwardly with us in our company. Again, the emphasis is placed on the fact that they had not remained with them. John's use of the pluperfect for minnow to remain or abide has the idea of completeness of action in time past and is translated 
they would have remained or would have continued with us. The second class condition uses the indicative mood with the conditional particle I in the protasis and the particle ain with the indicative mood in the apodasis. The second class conditional sentence is the condition of impossibility. In other words, if they had been of us, but they are not, they would have stayed with us. Metha, with, with the ego, the personal pronoun, uh, us, with us. It is impossible that they will stay with us because they were never part of us. It is impossible because the Holy Spirit has not indwelt them, so the truth is not what they desire. In fact, there is a clash. The truth and a lie are antithetical. They repulse each other, like the same poles of a magnet push each other apart. Let's move to the next phrase. But so that they might be made visible, because they are not all from us. The final clause in verse 19 brings out the purpose for separation. Namely, that it is a visible sign that the Antichrists are not part of them. The opening conjunction Allah, but, or moreover, is typically used of the strong adversive by John, highlighting the henna, purpose clause, meaning for the purpose that they might be made manifest. Remember the purpose clause indicates the purpose of the main clause of the sentence and contains the henna with the subjunctive verb. The verb panero is an aorist passive subjunctive to make manifest, uh, to make known, make visible. So this passive subjunctive is translated, they might be made known in a visible way, or in this case, by their lack of presence within the body. Doctrine divides, as it should. God demands pure teaching, so he sets a high standard for keeping his truth pure. There are two subjects to talk about concerning this subject. First, Paul said in Romans 14.1, Receive one who is weak in the faith without passing judgment on disputable things. You get that? Disputable things. Things that are questionable. Is it dogmatic? Is it part of the fundamentals? But understanding what is doubtful or questionable is made clear by the context of Romans. Paul is speaking about eating, or rather abstaining from, forbidden food in observing Jewish days. They involve the law and his compliance to it as he is a Jew in front of other Jews in order not to stumble them. Paul has a point. He doesn't want to stumble the weak brother so as to win them to Christ, to become members of this new thing called the church, the body of Christ. So things like prescribed food, whether approved or forbidden, and observed days that are once part of the Mosaic law that Jesus came to complete or fulfill are not to be argued over with a weak fellow Jewish believer. That is the context of Romans chapter 14. If, however, one wants to declare them necessary today 
in the church age for non-Jews, then Paul is ready for a fight. The second subject concerns doctrine and what to do with false teachers. First, one is to watch out for them. Be on the lookout for anti-Christian teaching coming from teachers. When a false teacher is identified, we are to command them to stop teaching. And if they refuse, we are to withdraw from them. There's a balance with this teaching. Don't be overcritical, overlegalistic. But in the same tone, if you have a teacher who is teaching heresy, that needs to be pointed out. Finally, the Hati Clause. That or because uh, or since provides the fundamental reason so that they are not as a state of being and will continue to never be a part of them because all of them did not originate from them. Or, as the Greek reads, they did not originate all of them from us. Let's move on to verse 20. The first phrase, And you, you continue to have an anointing from the Holy One, and you have known all things. The Apostle now moves back to the subject of their knowledge and experience to date concerning Jesus Christ. Since the little children continue to have the anointing from the Holy Spirit, or the Holy One, the stress of the phrase is placed upon their anointing, as anointing is placed at the head of the phrase. Hamis charisma, where charisma is accusative nominative singular, it means anything smeared on. Notice it's a, it's a neuter. It's an anointing. And this anointing is the object of the phrase and placed before the verb echo, which is a present tense verb. You have, meaning you continue to have or possess an anointing. The word anointing has a specific biblical application to deal with things sacred. The lack of the article seems to make this anointing one of application and in the classical Old Testament sense of being separated unto God for a special service, thus becoming sacred and untouchable. Notice the emphasis placed upon the address to the little children. You is an emphatic pronoun. You, you continue to have an anointing. It places the emphasis upon them and their state of anointing. This anointing has its origin, notice the preposition apo is used, meaning source or origin. It has its origin identified as being with the Holy One. The word for holy is an adjective and is here used in the masculine singular from hagias, the Holy One, and means primarily God as the adjective is acting like a noun. But it also serves to point to the subject noun, namely God in verse 17. In this sense, all three within the Godhead are in view, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for all are in agreement. It is Christ who is the Anointed One, the Holy Spirit who is the one anointed to, pull, to be our helper, teacher, and the one who indwells us, and it is the Father who sits on the throne. 
it has been suggested that there is a play on words at work here. Where Christ is the anointed one, Christians are anointed ones, and these are contrary to the Antichristos, the anti-anointed ones. Moreover, not only do they continue to have a witness by means of their possession of the anointing, that is to say, Christians have the Holy Spirit as a helper guiding them in their purpose of proclaiming and glorifying God, but moreover, they have seen all things, meaning they have seen all the things talked about to date that is needed in the mission of proclaiming Christ. And further, they have a witness within them that testifies and is active within them concerning the things of God. The verb of the phrase stresses knowledge by sight, Ido. Notice it's a perfect active indicative second person plural, to see or to know. We have an expression, I have seen the light, meaning I have thought about something and can now see the whole picture. In short, I know completely. That's what this Greek word means. I know completely. Complete knowledge. This perfected knowledge is something that was seen in the past and its reality is true up to the time of writing. The abstract nature of the object seen, that is the Greek pas, uh, it's adjective plural there, all things, has the meaning everything to date relating to the things of Christ, so that the Antichrist might be clearly revealed. There is a textural variant here, as some manuscripts use the nominative masculine plural form for you know all things. The idea of the text fits more with the neuter, since the idea is that the anointing, the Holy Spirit, teaches them about everything. So with that textural variant, I like the neuter better than the masculine. I prefer the neuter over the masculine. They have the spirit of truth in them, and the spirit will guide them into all truth. Verse 21. I did not write to you because you did not know the truth. In order to distinguish the truth from a lie, the fundamentals need to be fresh on the mind. Once the fundamentals are recounted, then the lie can be more easily exposed. John says two things in this phrase. First, the little children already have been presented with the truth so that there is nothing new concerning the truth. And the second point is they know the truth, or they knew the truth at one time in the past. The apostle starts the phrase with a negative, expecting a response in the affirmative. The aorist of grapho, I wrote, is in the cumulative aorist stating the action is viewed in its results. That is, I have not written to you, haughty, because you have not known the truth. The negative is emphasized by use of the negative particles in both phrases and views the action of writing as occurring at the point in time past. But its result, notice this, its result, namely the knowledge, 
is perfected or complete knowledge. And finally, the object of this complete knowledge is aletheia, truth. In fact, the article is there, the truth. This point is clarified by the next phrase. Let's take a look at the next phrase. Because you have known it, and that not any lie is from the truth. The point being made by the apostle is that truth is important and is given by God. And a lie is not given by God, but is a perversion of the truth. In fact, what is being promoted by these false teachers has to do with the written word. The written word can be verified and serves as a testimony. The false teachers are teaching contrary to the written word. John starts out with a conjunction Allah, but or moreover. That forms a transition to the matter at hand. The matter has to do with the truth. John highlights this knowledge that they should have by use of the hati conjunction. You have perfect active indicative, ido, seen, or you have known the truth. The feminine pronoun her points back to the feminine noun truth. The next conjunction is translated also. The chi there, I translate also, because it serves to continue the thought in a continuous fashion, like an itemized list, point one, point two, and etc., this is seen in John as John uses the hati conjunction because or since again. Kind of a, a one-two punch happens here. This reason points to the object of the phrase. Namely, each and every lie, the pos there, every lie, pseudos, does not have its origin in the truth. Again, the genitive used for truth with the preposition ek forms the genitive of origin. Truth, aletheia, and a lie are antithetical. They are opposites. Truth comes from God, and unless one wants to call God a liar, one cannot find a lie with God. Lies originate with Satan, the father of lies. Move on to verse 22. Who is a liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. The lie that has been propagated is now revealed. That is, some have taught that Jesus is not the Messiah. This lie has no doubt been spread within the church of Asia Minor. John starts the clause by introducing the relative pronoun which introduces a subordinate clause, who, and refers to the liar who is contrary to and continues to be, that to be word is used, who continues to be a liar. One might say he exists as a liar. The Greek suestes, with a definite article, the liar points to a definite liar, a specific liar. The word is nothing special. It simply means to lie, to speak deliberate falsehoods, and finds its source with Satan. John next uses the conditional particle I, meaning if, in order to answer the question, who is a liar? 
if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. See, he defines it. What a statement this is. This statement has served as a test of the true believer since the time of its writing. How do you know a true believer? Can the believer say that Jesus is the Messiah? If the answer is in the affirmative, then they are true and they abide in the truth. The use of the participle, or neomai, is a present, middle, or passive participle with the definite article there. To deny or reject with the conditional I and the negative particle may holds the key emphasis of the statement as the person who is one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. The complete name of Jesus Christ is, is emphasized as Jesus is Aisu, whose Hebrew origin is Joshua or uh, Yahshua. Jehovah is salvation is what that means. So his name tells you who he is. Jehovah is salvation. His last name, Christ, or his second name, is the Greek Christos, from Kyrio, to anoint. Uh, it's an adjective modifying the noun, and is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. This is a fundamental Old Testament concept that is fully developed so that no one can misunderstand the name Jesus Christ. The people denying that Jesus is the Christ do so at their own peril, and John calls them a liar. The Old Testament teaching of the Messiah formed the hope of Israel, centered in the coming of the person who was to be anointed as king and priest, and to whom Israel looked for deliverance from sin, as well as from oppression. Therefore, the messianic hope for Israel became the center of the eschatological expectation. Let's move to the next phrase. The Antichrist, the one that is denying the Father and the Son. The near demonstrative pronoun, hutas. This, along with the to be verb, points to the Antichrist, the Antichristos. The idea is that anyone who denies the Father and the Son is one who opposes Christ. This one is called the Antichrist. He denies the Greek arnomai. He rejects or refuses the Father, meaning the one who deny himself. I'm sorry, the one who himself denies the Father. But notice in denying Christ, he also is denying the Father. The conjunction chi and links the father with the son in a very special way. This denial defines his certain destruction and likewise refers to anyone who denies Christ. Let's move on to verse 23. Whoever denies the son, neither does he have the father. What the first phrase plainly states Namely, the Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. The second phrase makes plain the fact of whosoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The adjective used is pas, that general adjective, 
uh, everyone is the singular form. It might better be translated anyone denying the son. The verb arnoamai now moves to the present active participle with the definite article, meaning anyone that continues to deny or refuse the son does not have the son. This is highlighted by the use of the compound conjunction ude, neither, but not, uh, indicating that this person will not possess the son nor the father. What a statement. The son and the father are one. They are linked. One cannot have one without the other. There is no separation between the father and the son. The one denying does not continue to have patar, the father, as the present tense of echo communicates. Let's move to this next phrase. The one who confesses the son has the father also. This phrase serves the positive side of the truth of possession. That is, it answers the question, who has the father and the son? The answer is the one who confesses the son. The word for confess is a participle homologio, a present active participle, nominative masculine singular with the definite article. To say the same thing as another, to confess. This present participle means this person is one who continues to confess the son. This one is a confessor by nature, you might say. This forms the central test of a true believer. And later John will clarify this test to include that Jesus is God in the flesh in Second John. In essence, to confess the Son is to say the same thing as God says concerning him. The Son serves as the object of confession, whereas the Father is the object of the verb echo, to have. The conjunction chi is translated also, and most translations place it at the end of the phrase. To have the Father is equivalent to being safe with the Father. To be reconciled to God. The condition for reconciliation is to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. The little child of God must confess Jesus as his or her Savior and that he is also the Messiah, the one who will come again and resurrect the dead and those who confess him will live forever with him. And those who do not will find themselves before the great white throne judgment. What a picture we have here. In this section, the Apostle John addresses the little children in Christ, those immature, heard about the last days Antichrist. The Jews understood from the Old Testament that in the last days, this Antichrist would come and there would be hard times. Uh, the time referred to as Jacob's trouble. And during this time of trouble, a leader will emerge who will be opposed to the people of God. But John points out that even now, there are little antichrists about opposing Jesus Christ and the church. John intends to point out a theological distinction between right thinking and wrong thinking. A true believer believes that Jesus is the Christ. 
In fact, he confesses that. A false believer does not. This spirit of Antichrist forms another test for the member of his church. The first test presented in chapter 2 concerns obedience. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. The second test concerns love. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. In this section, one finds the test of perseverance. These tests are theological. They're not experiential. That is to say, the test has to do with their testimony of doctrinal soundness. Do they hold to the doctrines that were first presented to them, and do they preserve them? Have they separated from true doctrine, causing schisms and physical separation from the church? Do they believe, teach, and promote perverted doctrines? If so, they can be called antichrists. I hope this lesson has blessed you. Now go translate next set of verses, verses 24 through the end of the chapter, and come back for the next lesson. <music> 